Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mullinger Meets Canadians is brought to you by Nova Scotia Business Incorporated. Hello, I'm stand-up comedian James Mullinger and the co-founder of Edit Magazine. This is Mullinger Meets Canadians, the podcast where we meet Canadians who are making waves on the world stage. Today I'm in St. John's, Newfoundland and Labrador to meet the legendary East Coast musician, Alan Doyle. Alan Doyle is one of Atlantic Canada's greatest success stories. The former frontman of the folk rock band Great Big C is a singer-songwriter, actor, producer, author, and prolific philanthropist. Great Big C's contemporary spin on traditional Newfoundland folk music proved colossally popular with audiences around the world, racking up awards and making them one of the top-selling bands in Canadian history. His most recent charity endeavor is his leadership role in the A Dollar A Day Foundation to support mental health awareness, outreach, and initiatives. Doyle has some pretty incredible acting chops too. He has shared the screen with the likes of long-term friend and collaborator Russell Crowe, as well as Kate Blanchett, Will Smith, and Colin Farrell. One of his first acting roles was alongside Crowe in Ridley Scott's Robin Hood in a much lauded performance. In fact, Crowe loves Alan so much that his character in the film was actually named Alan O'Dale. In 2014, Doyle released a book entitled Where I Belong about his youth growing up in Newfoundland and Labrador. And last year in lockdown, he penned his latest tome, All Together Now, which is a celebration of this region that he is so proud to call home. On June the 30th, 2017, he was named a member of the Order of Canada for his contributions to the musical traditions of his home province and for his commitment to numerous local charitable initiatives. In short, he is a total hero and has been profiled by our magazine a number of times and appeared on our TV show Atlantic Edition. I'm a huge fan and we're headed now to meet in Quidivity where he's enjoying a COVID-forced reprieve between legs of a hectic North American tour. Here we go. Alan, how's it going? One of those for... <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a sad sign of the times. <laughs> it is. But we're Welcome. Re responsible. Thank you. I've set up this small meeting place for us. It's very inconspicuous. Yes. Is and this uh, where you uh, work every day? This is day? where I work every day, and uh, this is a very typical uh, near winter day in downtown St. John's, yes. in Kitty Vitty, where uh, the sun is always shining, and there's never a drop of rain. Uh, this is Kitty Vitty. Uh, this is one of my favorite places in the city, because, as you can tell, it doesn't really look like a city, and... As you know, there's not many places where you can where you can just wander from the business district into a place like this. So I think it's pretty special. It's true. Welcome. I mean, it's nice to have you. Yeah. Well, thank you very much Cheers. for having me. Cheers. I mean, this is literally the most Newfoundland view imaginable. But as you say, we are minutes from the downtown. It's, yeah. It's unique in in every way. Well, it's one of the things I love about St. John's in that it is one of the most uh, one of the only cities where I think you can do that, where you can walk from the downtown into the wilderness, you know, mm -hmm. and that's, uh, 
that's unique. It's unique and cool. And how's this, how's this similar to Petty Harbour? This uh, place is like Petty Harbour mm. in that it's based around the fishery, of course. And, of course, all rural Newfoundland places are hung around the harbour. And because um, that's where everything happened and started and made its way up the hill from there. And it's so it, in my lifetime, like Kitty Vitty is, is and, and Petty Harbour and places like it, are, are th those are the map, the <laughs> you know the map of what a town or a city should look like in my mind. Right. They start at the water yeah. and they go up from there. <laughs> so when I'm in places like Calgary and 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 the like, uh, I find it endlessly confusing because <laughs> I don't know where the city starts and I don't know where it ends and I don't know where you know how to go. You know, and so it's it's it it's becomes like a geo map in your brain and heart or something and. And so, but it's all, everything is focused around the most important thing. And that, of course, is the come and going of the boats. And, mm. and, uh, and um, in my lifetime, when I was a kid in Petty Harbor, that was the most important thing. Right. It's the coming and going of the fishermen on the water six or eight months a year. And that defined kind of every day and every season and, and every kind of facet of life, I suppose. Yeah, and when the fishery was booming, like in the late 70s when I was 10, the, you know, Petty Harbor, my little fishing town, much like this place, was a 24-hour town. Like, it just never slept. Like, it was two fish plants doing 12-hour shifts, and there was activity galore. You know, when I was a teenager, I was trying to sneak home late. <laughs> I used to joke forever that it was impossible to sneak into Petty Harbor in the summertime. Impossible. <laughs> There's always somebody up. You know, it's like, by the time the late crowd go to bed, the fishermen are already up and stuff. And, and that, But I love, I love that, that kind of feeling that, you know, there's a start something and then it all goes that way or whatever. Right. It's easy to figure out, I guess. <laughs> what are your kind of abiding memories of growing up in Petty Harbour? Uh, busy. Like busy, busy, busy. Yeah. You know, because, uh, which was funny because like so one of the, you know, when I started touring around Canada, like with Great Big Sea and stuff, and even just before that, I learned that like one of the sort of stereotypes of like Newfoundland culture was this, was this lazy stereotype. And I was like, who is that? Right. Like, where, where are those people that these jokes are about? Right. Like, you know, people in Petty Harbor, you know, started at 3.30 in the morning <laughs> and went, you know, till suppertime, you know, for six or eight months of the year. And then those guys cut wood all winter and mended nets and did this, you know. And so it's like, I never understood that stereotype. Being, if I could say one word about growing up in Petty Harbor when I was a kid, it was busy. Like, we were just always doing stuff, even when we were kids. And we started working on the wharf as a kid, cutting out cod tongues when we were 10, you know, like, not because it was some kind of child labor, but because it was fun. That's right. what everyone was doing, like, and it was awesome. You know, and you made a bit of money, and it's just kind of, it was a great economy to, to learn in, you know? And, yeah. And who knew that cutting out cod tongues on the wharf in Petty Harbor as a 10-year-old would teach you lessons that would help you 40, 50 years later. Right, and especially in a creative field. And that's, I mean, this is where you've always been unique, is that your work ethic as a creative is unique. Do you think that came from that kind of upbringing where you were constantly party to people that just, they grinded every day? Yeah, and, and because they loved what they were doing. Right. You know what I mean? Like, they loved doing what they were doing and they didn't mind doing it. And yeah. it didn't, you know. And then there was, there was also like a, you know, a, a brutal work ethic as well. Mm. Like, and if you're lucky enough, and I think maybe it's a combination of the two things. It's like, if you're from a place that always worked hard and did, you know, was constantly active, and then you have this blessed opportunity, one of the very few people who gets this blessed opportunity to do what you love for a living, yeah. then that's a double whammy. Like, then you're, you know, you're heaven sent, for God's sake. You know, like, to, to, 
because then you get to work hard, but you get to work hard at doing something you love. That's not like work at all, and yeah. and that that's very unusual. And I, I always acknowledge that that my lot in life is very, very, very fortunate and very blessed. When do you think you first realized that you, you were playing music, but when did you first realize that there was a possibility that this could actually be a job? <laughs> I'm still not sure. I've I, it's one of the things, and I'm not making it up, that I, every now and again I catch myself to go, and I, I have little phrases I say, like, don't blink yet, <laughs> or like, don't pat yourself on the back yet. Right. You know, like, because I, I, I'm afraid constantly that someone's going to come around the corner over and go, wait a minute. Wait a minute, yeah. but you didn't practice guitar that much. I know. Yeah, I didn't, yeah. I'm like, so it's all over. You got to go back yeah, to cutting I, I out. Totally understand. Tongues. Totally understand. There's been a huge mistake. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, like, I never ever thought, and still don't think that like you'd made it, like which is a term that people use yeah. in the arts or in the movies or in the music business. You know, it's like, what is that? What does that even mean? Like, made what? Like, you know, like, <laughs> to where? You know, like, and, right. and so I've always had this constant uh, feeling that I was on, the way I call it is a, is like a, a rowboat ride, is my <laughs> analogy. And so, like, it would be a great shame mm. to be on a rowboat ride that you were really enjoying and you stopped to look around and go, well, look at that, what a great rowboat ride we're on, right? right? And then the, boat st- then the boat ride stopped. <laughs> it would also be a terrible shame to be on a boat ride that was awesome. And you said, okay, do not stop, do not stop. Because, and then one day the boat ride will be over and you never enjoyed a second of it. So it is that balance that is the most difficult to achieve, but yet the most important to strive for. You know, that balance that work hard so you can keep the ride going, but for God's sake, don't miss it. Right. And how do you get that balance? Because there must be times when you aren't able to get that balance yeah. and you're either working too hard or striving too hard or it does feel like a grind. How do you kind of uh, make yeah. those things coalesce? I don't know. I'm not sure I ever got the balance right. You know, <laughs> and, I, and I think it's the most challenging thing. I mean, there are times now that I've been doing it for 20, 30 years that I can recognize when it's a win. Right. Okay. And sometimes that when you're younger, you don't know, hold on, guys, that's a win. You know, it doesn't feel like it. Oh, and the opposite is true as well, right? Yeah. You know, hey, we got our record deals. Like, it's all over now. We can just relax. Like, no, but I just started, you know, like, so you, you can recognize when a win comes your way. And even if it's just you break stride for a moment just to acknowledge it, that's probably enough, you know, yeah. or whatever. And what are the little wins now that you feel? Because as you say, when you were starting out and it was like you get, you get the record deal and you play your first arena and, and all those things, what are the wins now that feel just great? The wins now are really the, any signs that, that say I'm, that I still have a career. <laughs> <laughs> because, and I mean, I'm not being facetious yeah. either. It's just like, it's so difficult to get people interested in what you're doing in the performative arts so that you can get a job right you know and that could be i'm sure that's true for actors and and being in bands and what have you or novelists or anything for that matter and then you realize my god how hard is it to go to, to get another one mm-hmm. you know and and even if you're if you just stuck to one lane you know like you just played in bands your whole life or whatever and like to, to actually have people excited about your 13th record or something you know mm-hmm. Like, you'd think that that would be easy when, in fact, it's the opposite, right? It's like every time you got to up yourself and be and be more, you know, give people something they haven't seen before. And right. it's so, the wins for me come when it feels like we somehow have done that. 
that were somehow still relevant. Right. That, was, that's, that the phone still rings, you know, <laughs> yeah. and that someone says, hey, I've got a, a book, a musical, a movie, a, a record, a tour, and we'd like for you to be a part of it. And I go like, well, that is awesome. So look, <laughs> especially now, because almost everybody I work with is younger than me. You know, okay, and, yeah. and of course, for years, I was always the youngest person. And then, and, and now it's like, it's such a joy, man, to be part of a continuum, you know, and to go like, it's just awesome to have a broad palette of ages and, and genders and people and it's just coming from different walks of life and, and, and ethnic backgrounds and it's great, it's awesome, love it. Yeah, and, and I mean, people, this is the thing that your audiences love so much is that you, you genuinely exude that feeling from the stage that you yeah. appreciate every single person in that room for, for buying a ticket. And one of the yeah. misnomers I think people have is, is, that, is that making it's the hardest part, but as you rightly point out, sustaining it Sustaining it is much harder, yeah. And for me, that's one of the things I probably am guilty of oversimplifying. For me, someone buys a ticket, that's a contract. They're right. giving me their night out. Yeah. So whatever I got <laughs> in my heart and soul that night, they're getting all of it. Right. And like a friend of mine once wisely said, he said, all they want is all you got. <laughs> and if that's, you know, this much on Monday and this much on Friday and this, but as long as it's all you got, give yeah. them all you got and they'll be happy. Yeah. You know, and if you're, so that means, you know, if you're not at your best some night, but you're giving them everything you got, that makes a great night out for people. And, and I, I, certainly, again, as, as you get older, I, I become more aware of the value of other people's time. Mm. And I'm just, I'm terrified that I would waste someone's night. Right. It terrifies me that yeah. someone would give me their night and they would leave the concert not feeling completely satisfied or, or, or having, you know, over-promised and under-delivered or something. It would just literally makes me sick to my stomach to think that that's possible. And I know it is. Yeah, <laughs> like, but, but that's amazing to still have that, as you say, that contract with the audience, but yeah. also the fear. And again, but when you're on stage, every single person feels that, that you are fully aware that they have had to invest in a babysitter, a taxi, yeah. Oh, yeah. A, a meal, yeah. and you deliver. And that's why the audience keeps coming back. Well, I, I but, always, and I always sort of say it as well to, to younger people. I said, look, it's confusing, it's hard, there's a lot of stuff you don't know. You can't imagine what people are going to like in 10 years, 20 years, whatever, for popular music or what have you. Or, but you can control if you give people a good night out or not. Mm -hmm. It started thousands of years ago. Mm -hmm. People came and sat this way while someone else stood over there and faced this way yeah. and did something. And they liked it or they didn't. And there's been so many changes in you know, the performative arts and, and recordings and, and television shows and movies and talkies and, you know, and, 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 all, and everything. Yet people still love that. Yeah. They still love coming sit one direction while someone faces the other one and tells them a story through comedy or drama or theater or music or they still love that. So if you can be one of the people that gives people a good night out in that format, that's the best bet you can possibly have in, yeah. in any performative arts business, you know, and like, and if you're like me and you love doing that, then that, that makes it all the better. Yeah. And as you say, it hasn't changed in centuries since the birth of time. Yeah. That concept. Crazy, isn't it? You know, like I remember, I don't know where we were, somewhere like in like Atlanta or something, a couple of years ago with our band and we were just rolling. And I just saw like, and it wasn't even for our gig. It was like an afternoon gig because we were just rolling in there getting ready to set up. But it was some, I guess some younger like boy band or something was playing at the hockey rink or something down the street in Atlanta. And people were queued up, right? Like, all these kids excited. And it could have been the Beatles in 1965. You know, like, right. Or it could have been Elvis 10 years before that or before that or before that. And, like, I was like, man, it's still the same. Yeah. Like, and all these kids, like, 
you know, have, you know, internet and worldwide this and this and that, yet this is still the most exciting thing. Yeah. Is to go see the people doing something for you. Yeah. Like, and it's, that's amazing to me. That, that still sustains, you know. That's it. And I think one of the things that people don't realize when they're talking about people in creative fields is that the performance is everything and it doesn't matter on what scale you're doing it, whether it's your name in chalk on a board outside a pub or whether it's your name in lights above an arena. But for you, there must have been that moment with Great Big Sea where you were like, this is it. This yeah. is our, our moment. Can you, can you describe how that felt when yeah, it suddenly became it's such funny, a huge... It's funny because no, it, it never really happened. It still hasn't happened. Right. Like I, and I think mostly because I've been consciously not looking for it. Right. Because what's the point of that? Right. What's the point of, okay, this is it. Okay, well, I guess we'll go home then. Uh, yeah. You know what I mean? Just it's, keep enjoying the ride. Yeah, it's like what, I don't know, like, you know, what, what, what would be the point of ever making it? Yeah. It's just terrible. Yeah. Like, it's kind of, I was joke, and I'm only partly joking, but like having a bucket list or something, you know? Yeah. And I was like, what's on your bucket list? I don't have a bucket list. That sounds horrible. <laughs> it's like, what do you mean? It's like, well, what if, you know, what if you die and you don't get to do everything on it? And what, and way worse, what if you're like 30 and you have? <laughs> yeah, yeah. What do you do then? Yeah. Like, oh, well, did all that, you know, like, so I've never looked for, uh, I've only ever had one goal in mind. Mm in the music business or in the entertainment life or life in the arts, whatever you want to call it. And I, I, my, my only goal was to do it for a living. Right. So when you got that first check, yeah. when you realized that, wow, this thing I love, yeah. and I'm, someone's giving yeah. me money, yeah. what was that like? That, I do know that day. Uh, <laughs> there was a day, um, I mean, there was, like when my uncle Ronnie paid me 50 bucks when I was 15 to play up in Cape Royal on the Southern Shore for a Sunday matinee <laughs> at the Squid Jigger. Tristy, you know, <laughs> you get the Sunday matinee at the Squid Jigger, you're doing all you right. You know you made it, Yes, when. sir. <laughs> I mean, that was cool, but then, like, I remember, like, in Great BC, when we were rolling in our early 20s, we just banked whatever money we made, and we put each member of the band on salary. We're for, like, 250 a week, and then it was 350 and I think by the third year, we got up to, like, 600 bucks a week or something like that. <laughs> and then at the end of, like, I don't know, year three, our accountant... You know, because we had been signed at Warner for two years and, and Rounder in the UK, and like, we, were, we were doing good. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> our accountant said, you know, you guys, should, uh, you guys should really do a dividend. I mean, it's good you're saving money, but you, don't, you, know, you shouldn't yeah. do a dividend. And we are like... Treat yourselves. We were like, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> what's a dividend? <laughs> God. I remember he was like, what's that? It's like, will you take some money out for you guys? And I can remember actually saying, to do what? <laughs> yeah. well, what was I going to do with it? You know, yeah. We're on the road 300 days a year, <laughs> wearing cut-off shorts and old Doc Martens and socks, you know, like eating Irving sandwiches. And so what, else, what else is there? You know, it's yeah. like, We're doing everything we want to be doing. But I do remember getting a, leaving that room with a check for more than $40,000 mm-hmm. and just go, like 40-something thousand bucks and going home to my girlfriend at the time, my wife now, and just like sort of holding it in my hand like... Tra- like <laughs> What do we do? And, and just having this strange conversation that was notable, you know, because Joanne said to me, she said, well, what do you want to do? And I was like, I don't know. She said, do you want to get a car? And I was like, we were living in a basement apartment on, on Victoria Street with no parking, you know, and, and she already had a car. You know, and I was like, what would I do with a car? I'm gone, like, 200 days a year. And she's like, you want to get, like, some clothes? I was like, what? Clothes? Like, where would I wear it? Like, you know, like, <laughs> dressed like Pearl Jam, you know, like, and it would be off brand. Anyway, and 
you know, I don't care about watches or, you know, like yeah. anything. Like, so I was like, uh, uh. Anyway, what we did was we, we took the, the money and we bought a piece of land on a hill over the ocean in rural Newfoundland, about an hour and a half from here. And we built a log cabin, right. a little $30,000 log cabin. It's been built onto it many times since. But I still think it was one of the smartest things that we ever did. And I can brag about it because it was completely her idea. Like all good ideas in my life came from my wife. <laughs> <laughs> my wife, my manager, my crew, my band. It's never me. And uh, yeah, but I, mean, I do remember that like feeling that, wow, this is real now. Like right. I, just, I just bought like an actual piece of earth. Right. On money I made singing songs. Right. Like that's not nothing. Like, I mean, that's more than paying your way through university or yeah. pocket change, you know, for... For rent, you know, like that's because we didn't even own a house at the time, you know. It's just like, I was like, I just bought like a piece of land on band money, right? For doing the thing that I yeah, love, I was like, this is serious, <laughs> yeah. This thing that I would do for free happily, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And where was that career? Was how many albums in were you at that uh, point? That would have been in 1998, so right. that would have been five years in the Great Big Sea, so right. a couple of records. And no, we were doing, like, I mean, you know, it was foolishness that we hadn't done that kind of thing already because we had like you know, a record deal in Canada and yeah. Sire in the U.S. and Rounder in the U.K. and Warner Germany. And <laughs> like, <laughs> we probably had sold. We had a, a five or six times platinum record. Right, right. But still, hadn't taken it. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Okay. To do what? Why would I do it? <laughs> That's amazing. And then, yeah. and then for you at that point, when obviously you started playing kind of, you know, huge venues, yeah. You were obviously still playing smaller gigs as well. What, oh, yeah. Like, where do you feel like your heart is when it comes oh. to performance? Oh, it's always been the same, a full room. Right, regardless of the size. Yeah, full yeah. room, great. So that everyone's excited to be in there. That's the best thing. Yeah. You know, if that, that's a stuffed hockey rink, awesome. If that's a stuffed ADC pub, that's awesome too. And you does know, your and style change at all between yeah, the two? Yeah, the way you deliver it changes, like, mm -hmm. and that's partly my job as the front guy, yeah. you know, either in my own band or with, even when Great Big C was rolling, that was always my main job, you know, was to frame what we were presenting people in the way that would make give the best night out, you know. And then, you know, if you're playing a theater, you know, there's more room to play ballads and, and tell longer stories. And whereas if you're playing a beer garden, no one's going to listen to you. So you better, you right. better bring the rock early and often. Right. You know, that kind of thing. And then that's all part of the front guy's job, you know. Yeah. And I've been fascinated with that since I was a kid, studying how people do that. And I'm still a student of it, you know. And because standing up there and playing... 20 songs and then leaving nine times out of 10, it's just not going to cut it. You know, right. if your name is not Tom Petty, then you're probably going to have to do something, a little bit of juggling here, there, and everything. It's better, you know, and then of course there are the greats, right? You know, like Freddie Mercury or whatever, you know, who likes just like all the musicality and all the song, amazing, you know, musical genius, but then, and studio virtuosity and all that stuff. And then, but when the lights come up, it is showtime. Right, yeah. It is showtime. <laughs> and, um, you know, I never met Freddie Mercury, but I can almost guarantee you that if the lights came up and two songs in, Freddie Mercury discovered that the audience in front of him didn't want to hear Queen songs. They wanted, you know, juggling and fire. Then he'd be spitting oil out of his mouth in five seconds. Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, that's, yeah. I don't care about any of that. And, and I love that circus part of it, you know, like, hey, look, we're here to give you a great night out. Hopefully that's here to see our songs. But if not, well, you tell me what you'd like to do, and we'll do that. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's everything. And that's the showman in me. I can help it, you know. Like, and how do you feel when you're behind the curtain and you're about to walk out? Was yeah. there ever a period where you felt any kind of, if not stage fright, an aspect of 
how do I click the switch to go into showman mode? People often ask me, how do I get up for gigs? Mm. And I always go like, I, I have to get down for gigs. Right. I have to con myself. Right. <laughs> like, I, like that, I have no idea what that even is, like where people say like, where do you find the energy? Is like, how do I burn the energy so I don't go out and do the whole concert in 10 minutes? <laughs> you know, like, so there's the whole part of like finding the passion to make that night special. I've never had a problem with that. I've never, right. you know, I, uh, there is, um, and, and, and of course, I think what comes with that is that a constant, uh, I hate to use the word nervousness, mm. but certainly excitement and anxiousness right. that, come, that, that is always there and it should always be there. Because you want it to go well. Because you want it to go well, yeah. and the moment you stop wanting it to go well, you should really consider doing another job. Right. You know, because I've seen performers who don't care if it goes well or not. Yeah. You know, long in the tooth or what have you, and you go like, yeah, it's like, well, you should probably consider <laughs> going farming or something. You know? <laughs> yeah, whatever. You know, it's like, you know, if that's if that is not enough for you, then you are in the wrong job. Yeah. You know, and because if you're not nervous, that you know. 100 or 100,000 people gave you a night mm. of their time and you're not worried that it's not going to pay off for them, mm. then you're in the wrong biz. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Definitely. <laughs> you know? Yeah. This show is brought to you by Nova Scotia Business Incorporated. NSBI works towards a strong, thriving and globally competitive Nova Scotia through attracting worldwide investment to create new jobs across the province and working with companies in all communities to be more successful exporters. Visit NovaScotiaBusiness.com to learn more about doing business in Nova Scotia. When did you realize that kind of Great Big C was going to kind of cease? And did you immediately realize that you were going to go off on your own and do your own thing? Never really knew that Great Big C would stop playing mm. until it did. Right. Really, because, you know, the last two years of the band were, you know, troublesome because Sean was having so much trouble with everything. And, mm. and but we, I never, ever planned for it to stop. It right. was never part of my thought process that it would never come back. And it still isn't to a certain degree, to be honest with you. But all that said, I also had this dominant thought that I wasn't going to spend my time fighting about it. Right. You know, because I said, I'm not, when Great BC stopped playing, I was in my mid-40s, basically, or, you know, 44 or something like that. And I just said, like, I'm not spending the rest of my 40s fighting over this. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go, I'll go build something else. And when everyone's happy to do this, I'm, I'll, be ha I'll be the first one back. Right. But I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not spending my time fighting over the scraps of it or something sure. like that, you know, and like, but in retrospect, you know, I'm not devastated that it did either, just because it afforded opportunities that I would have never had if I was still in a full-time band, you know, like a, with a partnership with three or four other people and, and who are depending on you, like, in that regard. And I couldn't have possibly known how much I would enjoy sort of being in charge of my own calendar. Right, right. I, I, I mean, I love that. I love that if the phone rings and someone asks me, if I want to do something. You don't have to call through. I don't people. have to call through or four other people and ask them if I can. <laughs> yeah. I love that, you know, and that's, yeah. I'd, I'd have a hard time going back from that in any full-time kind of way. What would it take to bring the band back together, do you think? Oh, just for everyone to be happy with the scenario to do it, that's all. Right, Simple, that's easy. It. Yeah. yeah. Totally, okay. And what were those two years like when things weren't ideal? I, not radically different than they always were. I mean, being in a band is never, you know, particularly, you know, uh, without discord and harmonious fingers. <laughs> but they weren't radically different. I mean, it was just that I think, you know, in retrospect, it was just difficult because we weren't all on the same page. And that, that's all. I mean, and yeah. it's, it's very, very difficult 
to present a show that's filled with joy and harmony yeah. when everything behind the scenes isn't, you know? Right. Uh, now, we did it. Yeah. And I feel good about having done that. Yeah. Because, again, back to my other note about how if people, if someone buys a ticket to our gig, yeah. then that is sacred. Yeah. They didn't come to hear me and you talk about, you know, our, 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 how, how differently we want to deal with U.S. Uh, taxes. <laughs> you know, they, yeah. they came to have a great night out, and I'm giving them a great night out. Yeah. And I'm not, nothing trumps that. Right. And it's that thing where those two hours are what counted, and the other yeah. 22 hours of the day might have been tough, but you guys still kept your contract with the audience. And yeah, and, I, and I, just, I just kept my eye on those two hours. I never put it that way before, but that's a good way to put it. I just, I just kept my eye on those two hours, because they were still awesome. Yeah. <laughs> still, still, still got to play people. <laughs> yeah. And, I, you know, if, quite frankly, if the whole 20 years had been like the last two, I still would have happily done it. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Yeah. No it's, problem. Right. And we'll do it again in a second. Absolutely, yeah. So how quickly did you find your new band and get back on the road? Pretty much right away. I put together a little band for this solo record I did in 2012, which is a couple years before Great Big Sea Stops. And they were really it, just a dream team of people that I wanted to work with that right. came from, because some of them came from gospel background yeah. and country and, and, and more orchestral stuff. And, and, and the, with the exception of uh, one bass player who, you know, really, truly, the band has stayed the same since day one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're incredible musicians and they're unbelievably, un kind of unlike Great Big Sea where we all kind of came from the same background and the same musical background even. They're completely different. Like, <laughs> they're from different walks of life. There's just, it's, it couldn't be more uh, disparate. And I love that. That's like, <laughs> yeah, like, you know, it's a joy to be in the midst of it because when I was a kid listening to records and stuff, I mean, I loved bands. Like, I, I loved you know, rock bands like Van Halen and, and all that kind of 80s hair metal. Because, mm -hmm. you know, that's when I was a young teenager, you know. But one of my favorite things was sort of like American, especially American, singer-songwriter guys that had this gun band that was always with them. Right. And they became like a cartoon superheroes, right? Like Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band. Yeah. And you knew that that guy always played sax. Oh, that's the guy that always plays drums, wears a watch on his ankle, that's super cool. <laughs> and that's the guy, and like, and you know, you get the label and you go, oh, I hope Buddy's playing guitar on this record. And you look and he still is. And, yeah. And, every, and it was so difficult back then to see a clip of a live concert. Right. I mean, you'd look at a John Cougar concert and you go, oh my God, Crystal Telefair was still playing. Yeah. His band, that's amazing. You they know, were like, the Avengers to us. Oh, I just loved it. I still love it. And like. And like so, there was there was bands like that, like like Springsteen comes to mind, of course, because he's a legendary band. And then, but there was other people that always toured with the same gun bands, you know, like like uh, John Cougar and like even like Pat Benatar and and yeah. people like that. And I just I loved that there was this singer songwriter type person who was surrounded by uh, this recognizable gun band, like you know. And I guess there's no better example than Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like. Like, man, you're a heartbreaker. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. Like, isn't that amazing to get to be a heartbreaker for even one tour? Like, yeah. you know, so I love that. And so I kind of modeled my own solo band, uh, you know, the, after that idea that it, it was just this collection of incredible players, you know, the way James Taylor might do it or the way, you know, it seems to be an American thing. It's, it's brilliant. Remarkable, like, it's just remarkable. Yeah. Like, I just love that. Like, <laughs> that there's this... A team yeah. surrounding this superhero. That's super it. cool. I love it. <laughs>
And did you then or do you now ever feel this kind of pressure you, when you deliver the goods for those two hours? But yeah. as, the, as the party band, did yeah. you ever feel a pressure kind of afterwards when maybe you just want to go to bed, but everyone wants yeah. Alan Doyle to, to come out and everyone wants to buy you a pint? And yeah. did, did you ever feel like, oh, I've, I've done my thing, yeah. do I still have to yeah. be on? Felt it every night, <laughs> still do. <laughs> Pains me to no end to tell people, I'm sorry, I gotta sing six more nights this week, I gotta go to bed. It still pains me to, to say no, yes. Yeah. And if not, a, if not, I wouldn't, I didn't even think pressure is the right word. Right. Temptation, like, cause that's gonna be awesome. Right, you know? and who wants to buy your pint? That's a good thing. It's but great, the <laughs> it's like, go on, you know, but of course you can't, you right. know? and I was like, because as much as, and this is how I sort of say it, as much as I wanted that after show, mm -hmm. And trust me, I did and do, loves it. <laughs> I want the show the next night more than I want that. Right. So, and that's it. So, that's why I always tell people, yeah. come out, we're going to come out and see a show. You know, some friends from home, whatever. Come on a Sunday. Right. Yeah. We got Monday off, so. <laughs> yeah. 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 I've got, my priority is always going to be the show. It's like deliver, you want to deliver the goods. I never ever wanted the after show more than the show. Right. So, what are your favorite songs to perform? I think there's always a thrill playing a new one, right? Right? Because you know you feel like a song isn't born until you perform it in front of people. So that's kind of cool, because it's sort of self-congratulatory or something, you know, where you go like, "Hey, look at that! I just, I, just wrote, I wrote another song," <laughs> you know, and, and you need that. <laughs> I do anyway. Like you, you want to feel like the tank, if you will, is still filling. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that the catalog is still growing. It's so it's it's especially thrilling, like, because most of what I do now. And it's true for every band, but it's also true for, especially true for people who play traditional music, that your songs are always competing with songs that were already awesome. Right. Right? So if you're a traditional band, it's extra hard because, you know, okay, you just played Lukey's Boat and people liked it. Yeah, well, guess what? They liked it 700 years ago. It's awesome. That's why people love it. <laughs> like, it will be awesome when I'm dead. It was awesome before I was born. It is awesome. Yeah. And then you're trying to get one of your own songs yeah. to live in that catalog. That's, that's extremely difficult. And Great Big C had some great luck with it. Like, so there were a couple of songs, like a few songs just became popular like Ordinary Day and those ones. It's great to perform them live because, you know, they're, People love them, and you know that that's going to be part of giving people a good night out, that kind of thing. But then there's, there's songs like, one of my favorite Craving Sea songs to do all the time is The Old Black Rum, mm. because that is, yeah. occupies a bizarre place and in that it has been fully and totally assumed into the pub culture of Atlantic Canada. Yeah. And it's assumed to be a 700-year-old sea shanty or something. But Bob Hallett wrote it, hung over one morning on Water Street. I, I know, because I was there. And, like, and, and it's, so that is almost impossible to do. Right, It right. is almost impossible to write a modern, contemporary new song and have it live in that, on that set list next to those other songs. Yeah. That is so difficult and so rare. And like, like there's a song on my record I did called, a song called One, Two, Three, Four. And it's just like a, a party song about a band in a pub, you know? Mm -hmm. And it, it's sort of, it's done the same thing. It's just been assumed to be this ancient pub song or whatever. And it's just like, that to me is extremely difficult to do. Yeah. Extremely rewarding when it happens. And 
almost unnoticed in the greater music world. <laughs> right. But personally, it's the yeah. ultimate compliment. Yeah. And then you, when you play the first few notes and you hear the kind of the, yeah. the surge in the room yeah. on one of those songs, what's that? You still get a first yeah, song? Yeah, I've, I've heard of other artists, and I guess I understand it to a certain degree, mm. that you don't have a, a, a smash hit worldwide popular song or something. Yeah. And that they, they got sick of playing it live. And I, I have almost no full comprehension of where that angst would come from. Right, like, yeah. How, how, how can you... Walk me through how that's bad again. Like, <laughs> yeah. it's, first of all, it's going to be three minutes of your life, like, you know, and it pays for you. It buys you the opportunity to play 20 other ones tonight. Right. Like, how could this be bad, you know? Yeah. You know, unless it comes from some painful place, I guess, or something. I don't know, but it's like, I never had any trouble playing the hit, I'll tell you right now. Because, <laughs> in fact, one of the cool and odd things about my life is I've never really had one, Right. right? We never really had a hit. Kirby C never had a hit. I never had, really had a hit song. You know, we had songs that were popular in the pubs, and then we had another song that was popular on the music videos, and then we had a... But we never... I mean, it's not like... It's not like we're Chumbawamba or something. Well, yeah, but no, you know, one, like, no one wants to be defined by one, yeah. one, one song well, or be a one-hit wonder. Or... Well, I, my joke for that is a good one, too. So I was like, what's worse than being a one-hit wonder? So well, I can tell you that. <laughs> Try being a no-hit wonder. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, like, I, I can, yeah, I don't know, like, you know, I always think of Chumbawamba because yeah. we toured together a bunch. And, oh, nice. And, and, I, and they were defined by this song. Yeah. That really, it was nothing like anything else they did. Yeah, and, <laughs> and, and that's it. And no one could name another song. No, yeah, yeah, in, they were amazing yeah, live. Like, they were yeah. amazing. Yeah. And I loved it, seeing them every yeah. night. They were great. And uh, how did your friendship with Russell Crowe begin? Uh, very organically, uh, we met at the NHL Hockey Awards oh, really? in Toronto, yeah. Uh, the story goes back a little further, but in that... Uh, he was a fan, obviously, of your correct, work. Correct, yeah. yeah. Like, Russell was in Canada doing a movie, you know, I think in the late 1990s, doing a movie called Mystery Alaska, oh, yeah. ice hockey movie. Mm -hmm. And a Canadian pal named Kevin Durand, mm -hmm. who's a wonderful actor, yeah from Thunder Bay, Ontario, was on that movie. And he introduced Russell to one of his favorite bands, which was Great Big City. <laughs> and I heard through the grapevine somewhere, like in the early 2000s, that, you know, this famous actor liked our band and liked mm. some of the songs I'd written. So I just thought that was, that's cool. But of course, this is before the internet, you know, like, hey, yeah. yeah. check, you know, it's just like, it, yeah, somebody from California wrote a letter and said, that he sang one of your songs. And I was like, that's cool. So when we were at the NHL Hockey Awards, he was giving out a trophy in Toronto. He was shooting a movie called Cinderella Man. And I was there too, giving out a trophy. And I just very cleverly aligned myself in the hallway backstage so I could bump into him by accident. <laughs> and uh, we started chatting and he came to a couple of gigs and then we ended up writing songs while he was in Toronto, finishing that movie. And then I ended up in Australia a few months later, writing some more and producing a record for his band. And yeah. And it's on and on since then, you know, and and and, and uh, just been a cool and wonderful friendship from across the planet. Basically. Yeah. So how does that transition into him thinking, hey, this guy can act, so I'm going <laughs> to cast him in Robin Hood? Well, I always, say, I always tell the same things. Like, so about eight or not, six or eight years or whatever after we had met, <laughs> Russell was doing a movie where they needed a guy who could play like bazookies and medieval instruments whose name was Alan Adale. <laughs> and people always say, how did he think of you? I was like... Are you kidding me? If you didn't think of me, I'd have been something. Are you kidding me? Some Irishy sounding fellow named Alan Adale. I wonder who could do that. Like, but he one second. He needs to know how to play the lute. It's like, yeah. um, 
if you pick up the phone and Russell's on the other end of it, mm. the conversation picks up almost always like you had been talking 10 minutes before, right. even though you probably hadn't spoken in, you know, three months. Mm. And, it, and that's how he said, hey, man, can you play the lute? <laughs> and I was like, what do you mean? And he's like, you know, like the lute. And I was like, like medieval lute? Like, he's like, yeah. I was like, yeah, I can play the lute, like play bazookis and stuff. Yeah, sure. He said, would you come to L.A. to read for a movie? And I was like, what? <laughs> he said, we need a musician for this movie we're doing. Mm. I said, what's the movie? And he told me, and I was like, okay, <laughs> I'll try that. <laughs> so it was, I, was, I never forget it. I was in Ottawa mm. towards the end of uh, 2000, uh, 2008, I guess. And uh, it was close to Christmas. Mm -hmm. It was like an early, late in November, early in December. And I left the gig we were doing, and I went to the Ottawa Folklore Center, <laughs> and I bought a 13-string medieval lute. <laughs> and when the tour was over, about four or five days later, I got on a plane and I flew to L.A. and did a table read for Robin Hood and got the gig. Wow. <laughs> and what was the table read like? Like, was it literally... It was one of the most intimidating things I ever did in my life because I can't tell you exactly who was at the table, but they basically assembled their dream cast for the movie some of whom actually ended up in the movie. Right. I was so, I, I, you know, Ridley and Russell and all those guys were there, of course. And, mm. Had and, you met Ridley Scott before? Um, no. No, no, so, no. That must have been. Yeah, yeah. Well, the whole thing was crazy because, you know, it's Brian Grazer and Ridley Scott and like me, you know, like, and then, but one of the funny parts of it was, I got so nervous before this table read that I phoned my brother. He was in Texas or something, working in the oil biz. And he, and he said, Alan, are you sitting at a table with the gladiator and Batman? And, you know, and I was like, yeah, I'm sitting across from Batman. He said, well, I suppose you are nervous. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so it was, it was a very steep learning curve, but, you know, in retrospect, the whole vibe was that they wanted somebody who could write songs kind of on the spot and, and sort of knew both sides of the of the stage, if you will, you know, so someone who could both be a part of the cast, but also be a part of the soundtrack. Right, right. And so, which, yeah, which I, I learned how to do very quickly with the help of some very smart people. And, uh, and you know, with regards to like, learning to be an actor and stuff, I just did a crash course with the greatest movie makers in the world. Right. Right, and right. made every mistake you could possibly make, like in the first, 48 hours, basically. What, what, what was the best piece of advice that someone gave you about the acting process that, that helped? Well, Kevin Durand, he, he would always say, you know, Alan, just, just make sure there's some of you in it. If there's some of you in it, people will love it. People love you. So oh, just nice. make sure there's some of you in it. And, but he would also give me practical advice like, you're doing great, bud, come here. So after, you know, they say cut or whatever, he said, you're doing great, but, but just come over, i got to tell you something, which meant I knew I had done something wrong. <laughs> yeah. And Kev would say, no, bud, like, you're doing good. First of all, you're doing good. Thanks. Okay, well, you know. He's like, but when you say, let's go over by the tree and get the horses, you don't need to make the shape of a tree <laughs> with your hands. Like, they might take a picture of the tree. And I'm pretty sure people know what a tree looks like. We're okay. <laughs> but it must have been a transition to go from doing the job that you do, which is to basically speak to the person at the back of an arena, yeah. to having to dial that down for a, a lens. Yeah. Hardest thing, yeah, because when you're in a band for a living, being gregarious and, and larger than life mm. is being bigger than you are yeah. is constantly rewarded, right? right? And, and the, more often than not, that's exactly what the night needs. And then, of course, 
when your face is, you know, when, yeah. when the screen might be occupied by your left eyeball, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. you have to internalize things in a completely different way. And in a way, it's a, it's a very, it's a totally different skill set. Yeah. And the mistake people make, and the mistakes I made, were because you assume it's similar. Right. And it's not. And it's basically pretty much the opposite. To a degree, yeah. yeah. C- certainly, I think film and television acting is. Mm. I haven't done enough theater to comment on it, but mm. the, yeah, the, the internalization and, and the, and the other big mistake, of course, that people think about is that, you know, it's that it, at the heart of it is imitation or fakery. Right. Right? When, of course, it's the opposite. It's, right. It's, you know, you can only ever, if the character you're playing is angry, well, you can only ever bring your anger. Yeah. Yeah, like the, you, you should never look like you're acting. No, right. I mean, I'm, I'm not the guy that could be giving acting tips. Trust me, but the uh, it is a fascinating skill set, and I was just really lucky, and I always have been really in the few projects I've done to be surrounded by world class awesomeness right. who helped me. <laughs> That's the only reason. Surround yourself with the best and you can be the best. That's what they say. Yeah. Well, I'll drink to that, my friend. Thank you so much Thanks, for such a wonderful, wonderful Thanks day. Thank you. And uh, thank you for making me feel at home. Come anytime. A place that I now would like to call my new home. You're welcome here anytime. <laughs> thank you very much, brother. Thank you for listening to Mullinger Meets Canadians. If you like greatness, creativity, being inspired, laughing, or just love Canada as much as I do, then this is the podcast for you. So please do subscribe and review the show now. The show is brought to you by Nova Scotia Business Incorporated. NSBI works towards a strong, thriving, and globally competitive Nova Scotia through attracting worldwide investment to create new jobs across the province and working with companies in all communities to be more successful exporters. Visit NovaScotiaBusiness.com to learn more about doing business in Nova Scotia. For updates on Alan Doyle's tour dates, go to alandoyle.ca. Be sure to check him out at the Area 506 Festival in St. John, New Brunswick this summer and follow him on Twitter and Instagram at Alan Thomas Doyle. Further details can be found on the edit website, maritimeedit.com, and I will see you next time. Podstarter. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.